welcome to our verse-by-verse -verse journey through Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In this Gospel, Matthew seeks to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. For those of us who aren't Jews, Matthew helps us to see our Savior King more clearly and through his gospel, learn to live well in his, in Christ's kingdom today. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the gospel of Matthew, and let's learn about our Savior King and his kingdom. to Matthew chapter 13 as we continue our study through the gospel of Matthew. And we've been in chapter 13 a couple of weeks now and we've in chapter 13 contains seven or eight parables depending on how you view them. I I counted them as eight. We'll talk about the eighth one once we get to it. We've already looked at half of them and then we'll look at the last four this morning. And in these four, we're going to see that two of them are very similar to each other. And we see that often in the parables. But before we do that, let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this time. We ask, Lord, for your spirit to move amongst us, Lord, as um, I kind of dropped um, something that for many is going to be kind of a bombshell um, announcement. I pray, Lord God, that you would give us peace to know how we how we are to respond to that and how, Lord God, we are to, uh, to move forward from that. But for right now, Lord, you're calling us to have, have ears to hear what your spirit would say to the church. And so that's what we're asking, Lord, that you would help us to put the, the cares of life aside, the things of life aside, and that, Lord, we would focus on your word and what it is that you want us to get from it. We praise you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew... 13, starting in verse 44. Again, so this is, this is Jesus, and, and just for context, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Um, he, the first couple of the, of the parables were spoken to the multitudes. Then he goes into a house, and he has just his disciples with him. But the, they're, they're meant for all of us. Again, the, well, if you're a believer, you are a disciple, so just pay attention. Pay attention. Sorry. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which, is, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all he had and bought it. The parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price seem to convey the same lesson. I mean, if you remember, sometimes Jesus explains his parables, sometimes he doesn't. He doesn't explain these two, so he just boop, drops them and, and moves on to the next thing. And so interpretation, we have to take that time to interpret as best we know how. It seems to convey, convey the same message. We have two things two situations. One, where someone is not looking for a treasure and finds it. And the other one is for someone who's looking for something valuable and finds it. And so there's two different things. But the key is the response is exactly the same with both of them. They both sell all to possess this valuable thing. So in the parable of the hidden treasure, the man is not looking for it. But he finds it. And, and the, the, the idea or the sense of this, the interpretation of this, is the treasure is salvation in Christ. It is when, when we come to recognize the value of Christ and what he did for us. When we recognize that, that something happened 2,000 years ago that applies to me today, that not just applies to me today, but applies to me for the rest of eternity. That we, that we recognize that and we're willing to do anything to acquire it. Here in this parable, especially the parable of the hidden treasure, we see three aspects of salvation. Discovery, response, and commitment. We discover the truth. 
We respond to the truth, and then we make a commitment in response to that truth. Once someone realizes what salvation is, they should be willing to do anything to acquire it. In fact, if someone doesn't understand, they don't, they don't get the significance of what it means to be saved, they probably won't be. They're not going to do it. They're not, gonna, they're not going to make that. They're not going to respond. They're not going to understand, and they won't make the commitment. Now, try to imagine. The, the parable seems to imply that, that this is not a, this, Jesus isn't referring to something that actually happened, though it, it was real enough that it could happen. He's saying, try to imagine the man that found the treasure in the field um, treasures in the field was very common because they didn't have banks back then. And so if you had, if you had valuables or if you had, if you, had um, you know, surplus money, what do you do with it? You know, you, they, didn't have, they didn't have, you know, safes you could put in your house. And so what they might, when they did regularly, is they would hide it someplace. And, and they would hide it where only they knew where it was. And then you remember that Israel's gone through times where they were kicked out of the land and they'd come back and, they'd, and, and, and it was possible to go onto a piece of land and find treasure where people had hidden things because that's what they did. Try to imagine this man doing whatever he was doing and stumbles across this treasure and realizes the value of it. And then he goes, he hides it, and then he goes back into town and starts selling everything. What would the people around him think? This guy has lost his mind. He's lost his mind. What is he doing? And, and, and they would ask him, what are you doing? Well, you know, I'm just, you know, going through a season right now. Got to get rid of everything. Whatever, whatever he might say. But he sells everything, everything, his house, his, you know, favorite donkey, his, you know, his, I don't know, I was trying to make something up really quick that sounded funny, I can't think of it, so forget it. He would sell everything. Listen, it's better to look like a fool and take hold of the treasure that is without estimation and value then look as same as the same as everyone else and miss it. I still remember the day that I told my boss that I was quitting a good, pretty good job to become a pastor. He looked me dead in the eyes and said, you're throwing your life away. And I said, no. Yeah, I didn't say it, but I, told, I knew he does not understand. To him, I was a fool. Me, it was the best decision I ever made. Not the easiest decision later on, but it was the best decision. Turn in your Bible to Mark 10. Mark 10. In the parable of the hidden treasure, the worker wasn't looking for the treasure, but responded when he found it. The parable of the pearl, the person is actively seeking treasure, and then when he finds it, he responds. The point of both parables, the point of them is a willingness to surrender all to obtain, to possess that which you can't afford. And you can't afford to be without. Christ is such a treasure and is so precious that he is the worthy of the sacrifice of all. Everything. Everything that we consider of value, everything that we consider is worth anything, he is worth that. The thought occurred to me this morning as I was preparing. Suppose, I don't know if you know, but the latest lotto jackpot got up to like $1.4 billion. Okay, that's just dumb. But anyways, $1.4 billion. Imagine if you won it. Imagine if you won a billion dollars. For most of us, everything else in our life would become almost valueless. Your car, your house, 
You could replace absolutely everything in your house, your home, most of the things in your life with something of much greater value than what you have. It would, it would diminish everything after that. Christ is infinitely greater than that. Christ, when we possess, or more accurately, he possesses us, we have what is of such great value that there is nothing in this life that even compares to it. Nothing. Everything else we have is absolutely, it's not worthless. But compared to him, it's pretty close to worthless. The sense of both of these guys is that they recognized that what they were getting was of much higher value than what they were spending. They're giving away, they're selling, and getting rid of everything else they own to possess that one thing. Because they knew if I possess that one thing, I can have all that other stuff too, but better. And the same thing is true with Christ. I will sacrifice everything I have in my life so that I may obtain him because I know when I obtain him, when I have him, when I possess him, or when he possesses me, when, I, when that relationship is real in my life, everything else in my life can be better than it is right this moment. In Mark chapter 10 here, we have the account of a young rich man coming to Jesus to ask him a question. So Mark 10, verse 17. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may obtain, I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. But, verse 22, he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus is telling him, what I'm offering you is worth more than any, everything you own. And until you're willing to sacrifice it all, until you're willing to surrender it all, you'll never have me. And the same thing is true for all of us. The price was too high for that man. This, of course, is a message for anyone who is hesitating to come to Christ because they're afraid of what it will cost them. Listen, this is what it'll cost you. Everything. Absolutely everything. But the weird thing is while God wants us to give him everything, he doesn't take everything. And then he gives us so much more than what we give him. It's worth it. Whatever the cost, it is worth it. Turn back to Matthew 13. When you were saved, it's my guess that you would have been very willing to give Christ everything. You wouldn't have hesitated. Take it all, Lord. You can have it all. Now, that's not true for everybody, and it's not true for all things. There's some things we always hold back something from God. The question we need to ask as believers are you still willing? Are you still willing to give Christ everything? Because you know what he wants from you? Everything. He wants everything from you. He wants your whole life and everything in your life to be his. Because when it's his, we treat it differently. We treat it as something that's precious because if it's Christ, it must be precious. So the very things that I hold on to, if I will give them to Christ, they become much more valuable, much more precious. And I will treat them that way, as we should. But we must hold everything in our hands as though while they're in our hands, they don't belong to us, they belong to him. 
And it involves everything. It involves our relationships. It involves our, our, our jobs, our, our home, everything. Everything in our lives. It should all be his. That we care for it because he tells us to, but it doesn't belong to us. Are you willing to give it to him? Because it makes a huge difference in your life. And the, and the more things you hang on to, the more things you try to wrap your arms around and hold on to, this one's mine, this is mine, 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 mine. The more you do that, the less you are Christ. The more we give him, the more Christ we have. Verse 47, we have the seventh of the eight parables. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from the just. The, the, there's two basic kinds of nets that were used during this time. There was the, kind of the traditional, you've seen it, it's kind of thing they, they kind of hold in their arm and they, they throw it and it becomes this big circle and drops down and they pull it up and fish are in it. Or a drag net is a net that they would, they would, they would take the boat out and they'd start laying this net out and they'd start, they'd, they'd move the boat and it moves along and the net is dragging along and picking up every fish that runs into it and it's catching every kind of fish imaginable. This parable is similar to the parable of the wheat and tares. And the main point of it is that, you know, that as believers, we have, to, we have to resign ourselves to the reality that this world has good and bad, right and evil, just and wicked, that, and, and they are going to be connected and, and together until the end of the age, including in the church. As an unbeliever, I still remember the times that I was the time that I was an unbeliever. I struggled with what I saw in the church. It was a problem for me. It's one of the things that kept me from faith. I don't know where the concept came from. I don't know where the, 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 the notion came from, but I expected everyone who claimed to be a Christian to be different than everybody else in the world. I expected them, and I don't even, again, I can't even tell you why I believe this, but I expected them to act like Jesus. And I was a heathen, pagan unbeliever. I was unchurched. But I still expected those Christians, you call yourself a Christian, you should be different. And then they weren't. As a matter of fact, the ones I saw, which are typically on TV, I said, no, no, that's, that's, those guys are messed up. They're worse than, than non-Christian people. I expected them to be good. Not just good, really good. That wasn't fair. It was impossible. The visible church, this thing we call Christianity, not just this church, but the, the church, is not perfect. Far from it. It's not perfect because none of the people in the church are perfect. You can't put in people, imperfect people together and get perfection. That's just not possible. And because we don't verify your faith as you walk in this door, all kinds of critters walk in here. There are people who are far from God. There are people who are confused about God. There are people who are just acting like Christians, but they're not. I always got to be careful making eye contact after I say something. I made eye contact with John just now. I'm not talking about you. <laughs> I got to look down here. I got to look at the center. Wait a minute, there's Nate at the back. Gosh, darn it. I'm not talking about any of you, okay? You know, some, some people come here, have their own ideas of Christianity that are not Christ's ideas of Christianity. 
And some come for the purpose of taking advantage of others. That's just what happens. We don't, we don't, we don't check your Christianity card when you come in. And then we also don't tell them they can't come. In fact, we want them here. We want all those imperfect people to show up. And we want them to add their imperfections to our imperfections. And then, together, with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, based upon his perfect word, we're going to work to become more like his perfect son, Christ Jesus. Church was never to be a place, was never intended to be a place where perfect people gathered, ever. For one, that's impossible. You know where that church is? It's up there. Not, a, not on the roof. It's in heaven. The church is a hospital for hurting people, for wounded people. That's what it's supposed to be. The church is supposed to be a place where lost people can find themselves and God. The church is a place where, where people who are called to serve God come to be trained up for the work that he's prepared for them. The church is a place for fellowship for the lonely and disenfranchised. The church is for imperfect people. They're the only ones who are welcome here, except Christ. He's welcome here too. He's the only perfect one. The church is where we lay down the labels that the world has put on us. We lay them down. And we gather together as one, as equals, at the foot of the cross, and we worship God. To any unbelievers who might be here or, or watching online, you are welcome here. Any unbeliever. Any person who's struggling, any person who's seeking, any person who's just curious, they're welcome. Come. We're not going to try to make you believe something. We couldn't if we tried. Our purpose is to love. We're going to love the best we know how. And you know what our problem is with that? We're not perfect. So you know, do you know how we love? Say it. Imperfectly. We're going to do our best, but we're not going to do it right all the time because we're not perfect. No church is. We're going to tell you the truth. We're going to tell you the truth that we believe changes people for the good. And we're not going to hide it. We're not going to be bashful about it. We're not going to apologize for telling you the truth. And we believe and we understand not everyone's going to agree with that. Okay. Don't. <laughs> I've, I've said for a long time, I, I believe everybody has a right to be wrong. It's not a good thing. There's a consequence for being wrong. We're going to talk about that. But the reality is that the church ought to be a place where everyone feels welcome. Now, if you're just crazy, we're going to have a conversation, but you're welcome here. Amen? And you're all going to make them feel welcome here, right? Amen. Say, yes, I will. Say it. I will. I promise, Pastor, I will. And we're going to try to model the, the perfect life of Christ. We're not going to do it perfectly, but we're going to try. We're going to try to model that life. Our goal is perfection. That is what our goal is. But we recognize that is a lifelong process. We believe that Christ is the greatest treasure and the most pressure, precious thing that we can possess in our lives. And so we're going to tell people about that. And we're not going to be bashful about it. So I'm going to encourage you. If you're an unbeliever, you're either here or watching, find a church that loves Jesus, that loves his word, and loves each other. If you can find that, Dig in. 
because in that place you will find God. Amen? This matter is important to us. And one of the reasons why it's important to us is because God has poured his love into our hearts. And, and because God has given us his love, then, then we start to sense that that love extends beyond just us. That's part of, that's part of growing up in your faith. When you grow, as you're growing in your faith, you start to realize that the whole world doesn't actually revolve around you, right? Somebody say Amen. Because you know it's true. You know it doesn't revolve all around you. We start to realize that. We start to realize that there are people in the world around us that God loves. He loves all of them. There's a part of us that, that starts to care about that. We care that God loves them. And then we come to verses like 49 and 50. And when we do, that changes something in us. 49 and 50. So will be at the end of the age, the angel will come forth, separate the wicked from the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The end of the age is the second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes back, everything changes. That'll be the biggest season change in human history. When he establishes his kingdom on the earth, he's going to do many things. One of the things he's going to do is he's going to separate the wicked from the just. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. There are only two groups. This verse tells us the whole world can be separated into two groups. The wicked and the just. The Apostle Paul describes to us here in Romans who are the just. Verse 22, Romans 3, 22, says this. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, that means a substitutionary sacrifice. He paid the debt that we owe God. Substitutionary sacrifice, propitiation by his blood when he died on the cross through faith, believing that he died on the cross for us to demonstrate his righteousness in his forbearance. God passed over the sins that were previously committed. Somebody say amen to that. That he, God overlooked our previous sins. He said, okay, I should judge you for all of your sins right now. But he says, no, I'll wait. I'll wait until you believe. I'll give you a chance to believe. Verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Listen, this is what it's telling us, that, that when we believe in Christ, we, we, we place our trust in him, then God looks upon us and justifies us. That means that he, he translates us from the wicked, out of the camp of the wicked, into the camp of the just, that we are, that we are now right with God. It's a one-time thing. You are either wicked or just, and, and, and there are no degrees there's no, there's no spectrum. There's no, you know, you're mostly just, but you've got, got a little bit of wickedness in you too. No, it doesn't work like that. You're either wicked or just. We do that through faith. You're either one of the just ones or you're one of the wicked ones. If you're not one of the just ones, that's only one other thing you can be. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says very clearly, you are wicked. Now, you may not be as a terrible, horrible person. Yeah, I can say before I got saved, I, I, I considered myself a good man. I was wicked. In God's definition, I was wicked. Turn back to Matthew 13. At the end of the age, this separation will take place. <laughs> If it's for me, tell him I'll call him back later. 
Jesus talked about this separation in Matthew 25. Says this in verses 31 through 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory at the second coming and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. If you look at a sheep and a goat, there's no, there's no problem discerning the difference between the two. They're different. They're different animals. And when you look at them, that's a sheep, that's a goat. And, and, and there's no, there's no in-betweens, right? There's no, there's no goat-sheep hybrids, at least not that I'm aware of. So, um, man does all sorts of weird and perverse things. Who knows what they've done out there? But naturally, they're only, they're, they're, they're separate animals, and they'll always be separate animals. In the, in the same way that when it comes time to do this judgment, the angels are going to look at people and know that one's just, that one's wicked. They're, they're, not, they're different creatures. When we get saved, we become a brand new creation, something different. And so when the angels look at us, they say, whoop, there's one of God's, there's one of God's, whoop, that's not one of God's. And the problem for those on the left is, is they, their destiny is unquenchable fire where there'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. That, that speaks of pain and suffering and horror. Might speak of anger. Who knows what that, that'll be like? I don't even want to imagine it. But this should also be a warning for everyone in the church. Yeah, first, we must be confident that we are one of God's people. You know, the, you know the, the, the reality is that you can know. God's word says you can know if you're one of his people or not. You can be assured of your salvation. Now listen, it's not just because you're in church. I already talked about there could be all sorts of weird people in this church. Well, there are a lot of weird people, but, you know, people that, you know, are not God's people. Weird. Second Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. Make sure you're saved, he says. For if you do these things, you will never Stumble, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you are not certain, you need to make certain. And if you're confused, you're questioning that, come see me. I love talking about that. We should be assured. If somebody walks up and says, Are you going to heaven? Yep. How do you know? Because I love Jesus. I put my trust in him. I believe he died for my sins. However you want to say it, but you say it with confidence. I am one of God's people. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. Not even close. But I know I'm one of God's people. And I know I'm going to heaven. Second, be willing to help the bad fish become good fish. The parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price teach that Christ is worth more than all we could ever possess. There's nothing in this world that, that, that has a higher value, nothing that we shouldn't be willing to sacrifice, nothing that we wouldn't, shouldn't be willing to give up so that we might possess Christ. But once we do, what should we do then? If he's of that value, should we not be sharing him with others? What does it cost us to share the most valuable thing on earth? Again, if you want a billion dollars, how hard would it be for you to give away $50,000? It wouldn't be a problem at all. You could give away a million dollars. Wouldn't even, would barely dent how much money you have. Most of us, We'll never spend a billion dollars. People do it. I don't know how they do it, but they do it. If we have it already, 
and, and we can't lose it, why would we not give it, to, give it away as much of it as we possibly can to others? We want them to have what we have. Right? Does that make sense? Listen, if you spent your whole life, every, bit of your, every waking moment, every penny you have, every possession you have, every ounce of energy you have to bring one person to Christ, just one, it will be a life well spent. The value of one human soul, the Bible tells us, is worth more than the whole world. And if you possess Christ and your eternity is set in heaven, then we should be willing to expend everything to see just one more person experience the same thing that we have. Now, no one knows when the end of the age will come, right? We're not one of those churches. We'll give you a date if you want one. Tough. I, I don't have one. We might be closer than we imagine. And the question we need to ask ourselves, are we ready? And, and the way you get ready is just put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you get ready. But once you've done that, you've got to look around. Are those that I value, are they ready? Those, those people that are precious to me, are they ready? Do they know Christ? How about your neighbor? How about, how about you know, that person you don't like very much? How about your coworkers? Are they ready? If not, we shouldn't wait. Let God the Holy Spirit lead you into whatever, in whatever way he would have you to live out the gospel around them. And, and if he gives you the words to say, say them. What's it going to cost you compared to eternity? Listen, the consequences of not finding Jesus yeah, I'm speaking to the choir here. I know that. I know. I know. I'm guessing. I'm guessing most of you are saved. Some of you, know, I don't. I don't know super well, but I'm guessing most of you are saved. I don't know who's watching online. There's some people watching online. Maybe there's somebody that's not saved. The consequences of not finding Christ are too horrible to even imagine. Wailing and gnashing of teeth, an unquenchable fire for eternity. We began this chapter, Jesus talking to the disciples. When they asked him, why does he teach in parables? Why do you teach in parables? And he said to them, because it's been given to you to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. You have the privilege of understanding the mysteries, those things revealed by God that you can't discover any other way than through God and God's revelation. The only way you can know these things because God tells you, you have the, you have the privilege of understanding those things. Understand something. When he said that, he wasn't just speaking to his disciples. Who else was he speaking to? Y'all. All of us. You are given the privilege to understand the mysteries of heaven. So Jesus says, you've been given, the, you've been given that ability, you've been given that, that, that right and that privilege. So Jesus asks them here at the end of this text we're going to look at today, if they're getting it. Verse 51, Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes, Lord, I wonder. But that's another message. Then he said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and things old. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. Listen, Christianity is to be understood to be experienced. That Christianity is not something, it's not just head knowledge. It's not just knowing what the Bible says. It's not just doing what the Bible says. Those are all components of it. But Christianity is understanding these things. Getting to a place where I get it, Lord, 
And once I've gotten it, then I do it. It's my response. Once I've understood it, then I respond in obedience. Listen, God, as with all things, we, we, get, we get so casual with some of the things of our faith. I, I've got a, I must have 25 Bibles. I have got... I have got old Bibles, I've got new Bibles, I've got eight different translations in different forms. I have got so many Bibles. Sometimes we start, we get to a place when something becomes so common in our lives that we begin treating it as common. And the Word of God is no different. The Word of God is God's revelation of himself to mankind, saying, I want you to know me. And so he gave us a book so that we could know him. He gave us the Holy Spirit so that we could understand the book that he gave us. Everything that you need to know about God is right here in this book. Everything you need to understand What's in this book is inside of you, in the Holy Spirit. And God would call us to do our part in that. He says, have you understood, he asked the disciples. Jesus places the responsibility of understanding on them. Did you notice that? Have you understood? Like, like I'm asking you if you have done your part. It's not about the disciples being able to understand, but being willing to understand. Being willing to allow God, the Holy Spirit, to bring understanding. The things of God are bigger than you. The things of God are higher than your understanding. The things of God are so big that you will never get it on your own. The only way to get it is when the Holy Spirit comes in and brings understanding to you. But that only happens if you want it. If you're a true Christian, you can understand God's word. You can even understand the book of Revelation. Can we, can we say amen to that? We've studied the book of Revelation several times. We get it. Jesus is coming back. You know, that's what, that's what the book of Revelation says, right? Jesus is coming back. You want me to summarize all of the book of Revelation? Jesus is coming back. When? Soon. There's a little bit more to it than that if you want to spend some time with it. I've got a whole series online. You can go watch the series. We can understand. You can understand God's word. Not only can you understand it, but when we, when we come to things we don't understand, because if you're, if you're a faithful believer, if you're faithful to the word of God, because God is revealing as much of himself as he wants to in here, he's revealing some things that are not easy to understand, right? Anybody ever come across those things? I do all the time. You come across these things, okay, that's not easy for me to understand. There seems to be a, a, a conflict or a contradiction or, or I, I don't get this compared to that. And, and, and we start to wonder, okay, you know, where, where is the disconnect here? Right here is where the disconnect is. Here's what you do. Ask God three things when you come to something you don't understand. First, ask God to help you to be willing to understand. Because sometimes we are, sometimes we're not. Sometimes, you know, whatever our issue is, whatever our history is, whatever our experience is, we may not be as willing as we might think we are. Ask God to make you willing. He can do that, right? Second, ask God to help you to be willing to obey what he helps you to understand. You know, there's no reason for God to help you to understand something if you're not going to obey him. Do you know that? In fact, it's an act of grace on his part. If he knows you're not going to obey, oh, I'm not gonna let them understand that because then I would have to judge them for not doing it. Third, ask God to give you understanding. I want you to notice here, it's all about God. Sometimes we put the responsibility on ourselves. I don't, you know, I'm such a wretched, horrible person. Well, you probably are, but that's not the point. The point is, it's all about God. But we do have a part. We have to let him. 
We have to let him do everything in our lives. We have to, there's a, there's a, a, a concept, and it's, it's really brought out very well in a book by Andrew Murray called Absolute Surrender. The idea of, ap, of sur, surrendering every bit of myself, my mind, my heart, my emotions, surrendering it all to God which is another one of those lifelong processes we learn how to do, just like humility. It's one of those ones it takes you forever to master. And if you think you've mastered it, that's an aspect of pride. So just get that. Get over yourself. It's all about God. The eighth parable may not be a parable, but it has the tone of one here with the scribes bringing out the old and the new. The kingdom of heaven was revealed to God and revealed in what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are some that believe that we don't need to bother with the Old Testament. I disagree strongly that the whole Bible is the word of God and is given to us that we might understand everything that God has revealed because the Old Testament, he revealed things about himself that you don't find in the New Testament. And if you ignore the Old Testament, you miss what God revealed of himself there. And if, you, and if you only concentrate on the New Testament, you misunderstand most of the things in the New Testament because the New Testament is, is amplified or illustrated or enlightened by the Old Testament. You need them both. So if you're struggling to read the Old Testament, push through. Just keep going. Just keep going. I, tr I, I promise you, God will bring you to the other side. It may be an uphill battle. Numbers is not easy. Leviticus is not easy. Read them anyway, because God's teaching you something about himself there. Do you understand? That's really the big question. And if you do, praise God. If you don't, do something about it. It's through understanding the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven that we make it possible for us to see the kingdom of heaven right today, here. Not only that, when we understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, we make it possible for those around us to glimpse the kingdom of heaven too. And maybe, just maybe, if they get a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven, they may want it. God gave us his word so that we might know him. We gotta make it our life's goal to understand it. Every last word. We gotta make it so alive in our hearts. And it will, it will reveal great treasures to you and you'll find very precious things in this book. Amen? Heavenly Father, we come and we thank you for this day and this opportunity to gather in your name. And we ask, Lord God, as we have looked at, at your word, your revelation of yourself to mankind. And you, you're not writing just to the church. You're writing to the whole world. But Lord, only those who are your people can understand it. Only those who are willing to understand can understand it. And so I pray, Lord, that for us who call ourselves Christians, who claim the name of Christ, would be willing to understand every single word. And not just understand, but be willing to obey. And sometimes even that is not easy to understand how to do. But we trust, Holy Spirit, that you will teach us how to do that. And Lord, if there's someone here or watching online that does not have a relationship with you, Lord, we care because we know that you created them to be the object of your love. And because you love them so much, you want them to be with you for all of, all of eternity. But they have to be willing to come. And there's only one way to come to you. Your Bible tells us there's only one way to come to you, Father, and that is through Christ. And so I pray if there's anyone here who has not given their heart to you and surrendered their life to you, that they would do so this very moment. They would recognize that just like everybody else who has ever lived, their sin separates them from you. 
And the only way to have that sin forgiven, that we might be in a relationship with you, Father, is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. We must believe that Jesus came and died on the cross so that we might be saved. So I pray, Lord, you'd help them to believe, to believe that, that truth, that they'd make it real in their heart, they'd confess it in their heart, that they believe that they, they, they deserve the judgment that you're talking about, the wailing where the place of unquenchable fire and wailing and gnashing of teeth. They deserve that just like all of us did. But through faith in Christ, we have been delivered. We've been saved from that fate. And we've been given the hope of heaven. Lord, if they're here, help them to believe. Help them to confess their need for you. And help them to be willing to understand and for all of us, Lord, I pray, Lord, that, that you would help us to grow in that willingness to understand, willingness to obey, willingness to, to allow you, God, to shape us and mold us and transform us. And that, Lord, we would, we would see Christ as the greatest treasure on earth and the universe, Lord God. That everything that we might hope for, everything we might imagine, Lord, even, even, Lord, if we were to win the lotto, that, Lord, we'd say that's nothing compared to Christ. I pray, Lord, whatever your will is, let it be done here today. And, Lord, as we prepare to end this time and, and, and prepare to go and, and have a fellowship today, I want to lift up this food. I thank you, Lord, for it. I thank you for the people that provided, Lord. I, it, was a, it looks like an abundant offering out there, Lord God. And I pray, Lord, that through this time we would grow closer together and grow closer to you. We thank you for the food. We pray for your blessing over it. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about our Savior King and His kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. It is our hope that these messages will help you grow in your faith. If you have any questions or there is anything we can do to help you with that, please do not hesitate to connect with us. Go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. One of the ways we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. Send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word PRAY to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word GIVE to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.